This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Christine Blashford. www.wokeupthismorning.co.uk The Price of Love by Arnold Bennett Chapter 1. Money in the House Part 1. In the evening dimness of old Mrs. Maldon's sitting-room stood the youthful virgin, Rachel Louisa Fleckring. The prominent fact about her appearance was that she wore an apron. Not one of those white, waist-tied aprons with or without bibs, worn proudly, uncompromisingly, by a previous generation of unaspiring housewives and house-girls, but an immense blue pinafore apron covering the whole front of the figure except the head, hands, and toes. Its virtues were that it fully protected the most fragile frock against all the perils of the kitchen, and that it could be slipped on or off in one second, without any manipulation of tapes, pins, or buttons and buttonholes, for it had no fastenings of any sort, and merely yawned behind. In one second the drudge could be transformed into an elegant infanta of boudoirs, and vice versa. To suit the coquetry of the age, the pinafore was enriched with certain flouncings, which, however, only intensified its unshapen ugliness. On a plain middle-aged woman, such a pinafore would have been intolerable to the sensitive eye, but on Rachel it simply had a piquant and perverse air, because she was young, with the incomparable, the unique charm of comely adolescence, it simply excited the imagination to conceive the exquisite treasures of contour and tint and texture which it veiled. Do not infer that Rachel was a coquette. Although comely, she was homely, a downright girl, scorning and hating all manner of pretentiousness. She had a fine best dress, and when she put it on, everybody knew that it was her best, a stranger would have known. Whereas of a coquette, none but her intimate companions can say whether she is wearing best or second best on a given high occasion. Rachel used the pinafore apron only with her best dress, and her reason for doing so was the sound, sensible reason that it was the usual and proper thing to do. She opened a drawer of the new Sheraton sideboard, and took from it a metal tube that imitated brass, about a foot long and an inch in diameter, covered with black lettering. This tube, when she had removed its top, showed a number of thin wax tapers in various colours. She chose one, lit it neatly at the red fire, and then, standing on a footstool in the middle of the room, stretched all her body and limbs upward in order to reach the gas. If the tap had been half an inch higher, or herself half an inch shorter, she would have had to stand on a chair instead of a footstool, and the chair would have had to be brought out of the kitchen and carried back again. But heaven had watched over this detail. The gas fitting consisted of a flexible pipe, resembling a thick black cord, and swinging at the end of it a specimen of that wonderful and blessed contrivance, the inverted incandescent mantle within a porcelain globe, the whole recently adopted by Mrs. Maldon as the dangerous final word of modern invention. It was safer to ignite the gas from the orifice at the top of the globe, but even so there was always a mild disconcerting explosion, followed by a few moments' uncertainty as to whether or not the gas had lighted properly. When the deed was accomplished, and the room suddenly bright with soft illumination, Mrs. Maldon murmured, "'That's better.' She was sitting in her armchair by the glitteringly set table, which, instead of being in the centre of the floor under the gas, had a place near the bow window, advantageous in the murky daytime of the five towns, and inconvenient at night. The table might well have been shifted at night to a better position in regard to the gas, but it never was. Somehow, for Mrs. Maldon, the carpet was solid concrete, and the legs of the table immovably embedded therein. 
Rachel, gentle-footed, kicked the footstool away to its lair under the table, and simultaneously extinguished the taper, which she dropped with a scarce audible click into a vase on the mantelpiece. Then she put the cover on the tube with another faintest click, restored the tube to its drawer with a rather louder click, and finally, with a click still louder, pushed the drawer home. All these slight sounds were familiar to Mrs. Maldon. They were part of her regular night-life, part of an unconsciously loved ritual, and they contributed in their degree to her placid happiness. "'Now the blinds, my dear,' said she. The exhortation was ill-considered, and Rachel controlled a gesture of amicable impatience. For she had not paused after closing the drawer, she was already on her way across the room to the window, when Mrs. Maldon said, "'Now the blinds, my dear.' The fact was that Mrs. Maldon measured the time between the lighting of gas and the drawing down of blinds by tenths of a second, such was her fear lest in that sinister interval the whole prying town might magically gather in the street outside and peer into the secrets of her inculpable existence. Part 2 When the blinds and curtains had been arranged for privacy, Mrs. Maldon sighed securely and picked up her crocheting. Rachel rested her hands on the table, which was laid for a supper for four, and asked in a firm, frank voice whether there was anything else. "'Because if not,' Rachel added, "'I'll just take off my pinafore and wash my hands.' Mrs. Maldon looked up benevolently, and nodded in quick agreement. It was such apparently trifling gestures, eager and generous, that endeared the old lady to Rachel, giving her the priceless sensation of being esteemed and beloved. Her gaze lingered on her aged employer with affection and with profound respect. Mrs. Maldon made a striking, tall, slim figure, sitting erect in tight black, with the right side of her long, prominent nose in the full gaslight, and the other heavily shadowed. Her hair was absolutely black, at over seventy. Her eyes were black and glowing, and she could read and do coarse crocheting without spectacles. All her skin, especially round about the eyes, was yellowish-brown, and very deeply wrinkled indeed a decrepit, senile skin which seemed to contradict the youth of her pose and her glance. The cast of her features was benign. She had passed through desolating and violent experiences, and then through a long, long period of withdrawn tranquillity, and from end to end of her life she had consistently thought the best of all men, refusing to recognise evil and assuming the existence of good. Every one of the millions of her kind thoughts had helped to mould the expression of her countenance. The expression was definite now, fixed, intensely characteristic after so many decades, and wherever it was seen it gave pleasure, and by its enchantment created goodness and goodwill, even out of their opposites. Such was the life-work of Mrs. Maldon. Her eyes embraced the whole room. They did not, as the phrase is, beam approval, for the act of beaming involves a sort of ecstasy, and Mrs. Maldon was too dignified for ecstasy, but they displayed a mild and proud contentment as she said, "'I'm sure it's all very nice.' It was. The table crowded with porcelain, crystal silver, and flowers, and every object upon it casting a familiar curved shadow on the whiteness of the damask toward the window. The fresh crimson and blues of the everlasting turkey carpet, turkey carpet being the ne plus ultra of carpentry in the five towns, when that carpet was bought, just as sealskin was the ne plus ultra of all furs. The silken polished sideboard, strange to the company but worthy of it, and exhibiting a due sense of its high destiny the sombre bookcase and corner cupboard darkly glittering, the Chesterfield sofa broad, accepting, acquiescent, the flashing brass fender and copper scuttle, the comfortably reddish walls with their pictures, like limpets on the face of precipices, the new whitened ceiling, in the midst the incandescent lamp that hung like the moon in heaven, 
and then the young sturdy girl standing over the old woman and breathing out the very breath of life vitalizing everything rejuvenating the old woman mrs maldon's sitting-room had a considerable renown among her acquaintance not only for its peculiar charm which combined and reconciled the tastes of two very different generations but also for its radiant cleanness there are many clean houses in the five towns using the adjective in the relative sense in which the five towns is forced by chimneys to use it but mrs maldon's sitting-room save for the white window-curtains which had to accept the common grey fate of white window-curtains in the district was clean in the countryside sense almost in the dutch sense the challenge of its cleanness gleamed on every polished surface victorious in the unending battle against the horrible contagion of foul industries mrs maldon's friends would assert that the state of that sitting-room passed them or fair passed them and she would receive their ever amazed compliments with modesty but behind her benevolent depreciation she would be blandly saying to herself yes i'm scarcely surprised it passes you seeing the way you housewives let things go on here the word here would be faintly emphasized in her mind as no native would have emphasized it rachel shared the general estimate of the sitting-room she appreciated its charm and admitted to herself that her first vision of it rather less than a month before had indeed given her a new and startling ideal of cleanliness on that occasion it had been evident from mrs maldon's physical exhaustion that the housemistress had made an enormous personal effort to dazzle and inspire her new lady companion which effort though detected and perhaps scorned by rachel had nevertheless succeeded in its aim with a certain presence of mind rachel had feigned to remark nothing miraculous in the condition of the room appropriating the new ideal instantly she had on the first morning of her service turned out the room before breakfast well knowing that it must have been turned out on the previous day dumbfounded for a few moments mrs maldon had at length said in her sweet and cordial benevolence i'm glad to see we think alike about cleanliness and rachel had replied with an air at once deferential sweet and yet casual oh, of course mrs maldon then they measured one another in a silent exchange mrs maldon was aware that she had by chance discovered a pearl yes a treasure beyond pearls and rachel too divined the high value of her employer and felt within the stirrings of a passionate loyalty towards her part three and yet during the three weeks and a half of their joint existence rachel's estimate of mrs maldon had undergone certain subtle modifications at first somewhat overawed rachel had seen in her employer the mrs maldon of the town's legend which legend had travelled to rachel as far as knype whence she sprang that is to say one of the great ladies of bursley ranking in the popular regard with mrs clayton vernon the leader of society mrs sutton the philanthropist and mrs hamps the powerful religious bully she had been impressed by her height rachel herself being no lamp-post her carriage her superlative dignity her benevolence of thought and above all by her aristocratic southern accent after eight-and-forty years of the five towns mrs maldon had still kept most of that southern accent so intimidating to the rough broad talkers of the district who take revenge by mocking it among themselves but for whom it will always possess the thrilling prestige of high life and then day by day rachel had discovered that great ladies are after all human creatures strangely resembling other human creatures and mrs maldon slowly became for her an old woman of seventy-two with unquestionably wondrous hair but failing in strength and in faculties and it grew merely pathetic to rachel that mrs maldon should force herself always to sit straight upright as for mrs maldon's charitableness rachel could not deny that she refused to think evil 
and yet it was plain that at bottom Mrs. Maldon was not much deceived about people, in which apparent inconsistency there hid a slight disturbing suggestion of falseness that mysteriously fretted the downright Rachel. Again, beneath Mrs. Maldon's modesty concerning the merits of her sitting-room, Rachel soon fancied that she could detect traces of an ingenuous and possibly senile house-pride, which did more than fret the lady companion, it faintly offended her. That one should be proud of a possession or of an achievement was admissible, but that one should fail to conceal the pride absolutely was to Rachel, with her five towns character, a sign of weakness, a sign of the soft south. Lastly, Mrs. Maldon had, it transpired, her ways, for example, in the matter of blinds and in the matter of tapers. She would actually insist on the gas being lighted with a taper. A paper spill, which was just as good and better, seemed to ruffle her benign placidity, and she was funnily economical with matches. Rachel had never seen a taper before, and could not conceive where the old lady managed to buy the things. In short, with admiration almost undiminished, and with a rapidly growing love and loyalty, Rachel had arrived at the point of feeling glad that she, a mature, capable, sagacious, and strong woman, was there to watch over the last years of the waning and somewhat peculiar old lady. Mrs. Maldon did not see the situation from quite the same angle. She did not, for example, consider herself to be in the least peculiar, but on the contrary, a very normal woman. She had always used tapers. She could remember the period when everyone used tapers. In her view, tapers were far more genteel and less dangerous than the untidy, flaring spill, which she abhorred as a vulgarity. As for matches, frankly, it would not have occurred to her to waste a match when fire was available. In the matter of her sharp insistence on drawn blinds at night, domestic privacy seemed to be one of the fundamental decencies of life, simply that. And as for house-pride, she considered that she locked away her fervent feeling for her parlour in a manner marvellous and complete. No one could or ever would guess the depth of her attachment to that sitting-room, nor the extent to which it engrossed her emotional life. And yet she had only occupied the house for fourteen years out of the forty-five years of her widowhood, and the furniture had at intervals been renewed for Mrs. Maldon would on no account permit herself to be old-fashioned. Indeed, she had had five different sitting-rooms in five different houses since her husband's death. No matter. They were all the same sitting-room, all rendered identical by the mysterious force of her dreamy meditations on the past. And moreover, sundry important articles had remained constant to preserve unbroken the chain that linked her to her youth. The table which Rachel had so nicely laid was the table at which Mrs. Maldon had taken her first meal as mistress of a house. Her husband had carved mutton at it, and grumbled about the consistency of toast. Her children had spilt jam on its cloth. And when, on Sunday nights, she wound up the bracket clock on the mantelpiece, she could see and hear a handsome young man in a long frock-coat, and a large shirt-front and a very thin black tie winding it up to her husband, on Sunday nights and she could simultaneously see another handsome young man winding it up, her son. Her pictures were admired. "'Your son painted this watercolour, did he not, Mrs. Maldon?' "'Yes, my son Athelstan.' "'How gifted he must have been!' "'Yes, the best judges say he showed very remarkable promise. "'It's fading, I fear. I ought to cover it up, but somehow I can't fancy covering it up.' The hand that had so remarkably promised had lain mouldering for a quarter of a century— Mrs. Maldon sometimes saw it, fleshless, on a cage-like skeleton in the dark grave. The next moment she would see herself tending its chilblains. And if she was not peculiar, neither was she waning. No! Seventy-two, but not truly old. How could she be truly old when she could see, hear, walk a mile without stopping, eat anything whatever, and dress herself unaided, 
and that hair of hers often she was still a young wife or a young widow she was not preparing for death she had prepared for death in the seventies she expected to live on in calm satisfaction through indefinite decades she savoured life pleasantly for its daily security was impregnable she had forgotten grief when she looked up at rachel and benevolently nodded to her she saw a girl of line character absolutely trustworthy very devoted very industrious very capable intelligent cheerful in fact a splendid girl a girl to be enthusiastic about but such a mere girl a girl with so much to learn so pathetically young and inexperienced and positive and sure of herself the looseness of her limbs the unconscious abrupt freedom of her gestures the waviness of her auburn hair the candour of her glance the warmth of her indignation against injustice and dishonesty the capricious and sensitive flowings of blood to her smooth cheeks the ridiculous wise compressings of her lips the rise and fall of her rich and innocent bosom these phenomena touched mrs maldon and occasionally made her want to cry thought she i was never so young as that at twenty-two at twenty-two i had had mary the possibility that in spite of having had mary who would now have been fifty but for death she had as a fact been approximately as young as that at twenty-two did not ever present itself to the waning and peculiar old lady she was glad that she a mature and profoundly experienced woman in full possession of all her faculties was there to watch over the development of the lovable affectionate and impulsive child part four oh here's the paper mrs maldon said rachel as turning away to leave the room she caught sight of the extra special edition of the signal which lay a pale green on the dark green of the chesterfield mrs maldon answered placidly when did you bring it in i never heard the boy come but my hearing's not quite what it used to be that's true open it for me my dear i can't stretch my arms as i used to she was one of the few women in the five towns who deigned to read a newspaper regularly and one of the still fewer who would lead the miscellaneous conversation of drawing-rooms away from domestic chatter and discussions of individualities to political and municipal topics and even towards general ideas she seldom did more than mention a topic and then express a hope for the best or explain that this phenomenon was such a pity or that phenomenon such a good thing or that about another phenomenon one really didn't know what to think but these remarks sufficed to class her apart among her sex as a very up-to-date old lady with a broad outlook upon the world and to inspire sundry other ladies with a fearful respect for her masculine intellect and judgment she was aware of her superiority and had a certain kind disdain for the increasing number of women who took in a daily picture-paper and who having dawdled over its illustrations after breakfast spoke of what they had seen in the newspaper she would not allow that a picture-paper was a newspaper rachel stood in the empty space under the gas her arms were stretched out and slightly upward as she held the signal wide open and glanced at the newspaper frowning the light fell full on her coppery hair her balanced body though masked in front by the perpendicular fall of the apron as she bent somewhat forward was nevertheless the image of potential vivacity and energy it seemed almost to vibrate with its own consciousness of physical pride left alone rachel would never have opened a newspaper at any rate for the news until she knew mrs maldon she had never seen a woman read a newspaper for out except the advertisements relating to situations houses and pleasures but much more than she imagined she was greatly under the influence of mrs maldon mrs maldon made a nightly solemnity of the newspaper and rachel naturally soon persuaded herself that it was a fine and a superior thing to read the newspaper a proof of unusual intelligence 
Moreover, just as she felt bound to show Mrs. Maldon that her notion of cleanliness was as advanced as anybody's, so she felt bound to indicate, by an appearance of casualness, that for her to read the paper was the most customary thing in the world. Of course she read the paper, and that she should calmly look at it herself before handing it to her mistress proved that she had already established a very secure position in the house. She said, her eyes following the lines, and her feet moving in the direction of Mrs. Maldon, "'Those burglaries are still going on. Hillport now!' "'Oh, dear, dear,' murmured Mrs. Maldon, as Rachel spread the newspaper lightly over the tea-tray and its contents. "'Oh, dear, dear, I do hope the police will catch someone soon. I'm sure they're doing their best, but really—' Rachel bent with confident intimacy over the old lady's shoulder, and they read the burglary column together, Rachel interrupting herself for an instant to pick up Mrs. Maldon's ball of black wool which had slipped to the floor. The signal reporter had omitted none of the classic clichés proper to the subject, and such words and phrases as Jemmy, effected an entrance, the servant now thoroughly alarmed, stealthy footsteps, escaped with their booty, seriously disquieted both of the women, caused a sudden sensation of sinking in the region of the heart. Yet neither would put the secret fear into speech, for each by instinct felt that a fear once uttered is strengthened and made more real living solitary and unprotected by male sinews in a house which though it did not stand alone was somewhat withdrawn from the town they knew themselves the ideal prey of conventional burglars with masks dark lanterns revolvers and jemmies they were grouped together like some symbolic sculpture and with all their fortitude and common sense they still in unconscious attitude expressed the helpless and resigned fatalism of their sex before certain menaces of bodily danger the thrilled expectant submission of women in a city about to be sacked nothing could save them if the peril entered the house but they would not say aloud suppose they came here how terrible they would not even whisper the slightest apprehension they just briefly discussed the matter with a fine air of indifferent aloofness remaining calm while the brick walls and the social system which defended that bright and delicate parlour from the dark savage universe without seemed to crack and shiver Mrs. Maldon, suddenly noticing that one blind was half an inch short of the bottom of the window rose nervously and pulled it down further "'Why didn't you ask me to do that?' said Rachel, thinking what a fidgety person the old lady was. Mrs. Maldon replied, "'It's all right, my dear. Did you fasten the window on the upstairs landing?' "'As if burglars would try to get in by an upstairs window, and on the street,' thought Rachel, pityingly impatient. "'However, it's her house, and I'm paid to do what I'm told,' she added to herself, very sensibly. Then she said aloud, in a soothing tone, "'No, I didn't, but I will do it.' She moved towards the door, and at the same moment a knock on the front door sent a vibration through the whole house. Nearly all knocks on the front door shook the house, and further, burglars do not generally knock as a preliminary to effecting an entrance. Nevertheless, both women started, and were ashamed of starting. "'Surely he's rather early,' said Mrs. Maldon, with an exaggerated tranquillity. And Rachel, with a similar lack of conviction in her calm gait, went audaciously forth into the dark lobby. Part 5 on the glass panels of the front door, the street lamp threw a faint, distorted shadow of a bowler hat, two rather protruding ears, and a pair of long, outspreading whiskers, whose ends merged into broad shoulders. Any one familiar with the streets of Bursley would have instantly divined that Councillor Thomas Batchgrew stood between the gas lamp and the front door, and even Rachel, whose acquaintance with Bursley was still slight, at once recognised the outlines of the figure. She had seen Councillor Batchgrew one day, conversing with Mrs. Maldon in Moorthorne Road, and she knew that he bore to Mrs. Maldon the vague but imposing relation of trustee. There are many, indeed perhaps too many, remarkable men in the five towns. Thomas Batchgrew was one of them. 
He had begun life as a small plumber in Bursley Marketplace, living behind and above the shop, and begetting a considerable family, which exercised itself in the backyard among empty and full turpentine cans. The original premises survived as a branch establishment, and Batchgrew's latest married grandson condescended to reside on the first floor, and to keep a motor-car and a tricar in the backyard, now roofed over, in a manner not strictly conforming to the building by-laws of the borough. All Batchgrew's sons and daughters were married, and several of his grandchildren also, and all his children, and more than one of the grandchildren, kept motor-cars. Not a month passed but some Batchgrew, or some Batchgrew's husband or child, bought a motor-car, or sold one, or exchanged a small one for a larger one, or had an accident, or was gloriously fined in some distant part of the country for illegal driving. Nearly all of them had spacious detached houses, with gardens and gardeners, and patent slow combustion grates, and porcelain bathrooms comprising every appliance for luxurious splashing and with the exception of one son who had been assisted to Valparaiso in order that he might there seek death in the tankard without outraging the family, they were all teetotalers, because the old man, old Jack, was a teetotaler. The family pyramid was based firm on the old man, the numerous relatives held closely together like an alien oligarchical caste in a conquered country. If they ever did quarrel, it must have been in private." The principal seat of business, electrical apparatus, heating apparatus, and decorating and plumbing on a grandiose scale, in Hambridge, had over its immense windows the sign, John Batchgrew and Sons. The sign might well have read, John Batchgrew and Sons, daughters, daughters-in-law, sons-in-law, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. The Batchgrew partners were always tendering for, and often winning, some big contract or other for heating and lighting and embellishing a public building or a mansion or manufactory. They by no means confined their activities to the five towns, having an address in London, and another in Valparaiso. And small private customers were ever complaining of the inaccuracy of their accounts for small jobs. People who, in the age of Queen Victoria's earlier widowhood, had sent for Batchgrew to repair a burst spout, still by force of habit sent for Batchgrew to repair a burst spout, and still had to call at Batchgrew's about mistakes in the bills, which mistakes after much argument and asseveration were occasionally put right. In spite of their prodigious expenditures, and of a certain failure on the part of the public to understand where all the money came from, the financial soundness of the Batchgrews was never questioned. In discussing the Batchgrews, no bank manager and no lawyer had ever by an intonation or a movement of the eyelid hinted that earthquakes had occurred before in the history of the world, and might occur again. And yet old Batchgrew, admittedly the cleverest of the lot, save possibly the Valparaiso soaker, could not be said to attend assiduously to business. He scarcely averaged two hours a day on the premises at Hanbridge. Indeed the staff there had a sense of the unusual, inciting to unusual energy and devotion when word went round, Governor's in the office with Mr. John. The councillor was always extremely busy with something other than his main enterprise. It was now reported, for example, that he was clearing vast sums out of picture palaces in Wigan and Warrington. Also, he was a religionist, being chairman of the local Church of England Village Mission Fund, and he was a politician, powerful in municipal affairs, and he was a reformer, who believed that by abolishing beer he could abolish the poverty of the poor, and acted accordingly, and lastly, he liked to enjoy himself. Everybody knew by sight his flying white whiskers and protruding ears, and he himself was well aware of the steady advertising value of those whiskers, of always being recognisable half a mile off. He met everybody unflinchingly, for he felt that he was invulnerable at all points, and sure of a magnificent obituary. He was invariably treated with marked deference and respect, but he was not an honest man. He knew it, all his family knew it, in business everybody knew it except a few nincompoops. Scarcely anyone trusted him, 
the peculiar fashion in which when he was not present people old jacked him this alone was enough to condemn a man of his years lastly everybody knew that most of the batchgrew family was of a piece with its head part six now rachel had formed a prejudice against old batchgrew she had formed it immutably in a single second of time one glance at him in the street and she had tried and condemned him according to the summary justice of youth she was in that stage of plenary and unhesitating wisdom when one not only can but one must divide the whole human race sharply into two categories the sheep and the goats and she had sentenced old batchgrew to a place on the extreme left it happened that she knew nothing against him but she did not require evidence she simply did not like that man she italicized the end of the phrase bitingly to herself and there was no appeal against the verdict angels could not have successfully interceded for him in the courts of her mind he never guessed in his aged self-sufficiency that his case was hopeless with rachel nor even that the child had dared to have any opinion about him at all she was about to slip off the pinafore apron and drop it on to the oak chest that stood in the lobby but she thought with defiance why should i take my pinafore off for him i won't he shan't see my nice frock let him see my pinafore i am an independent woman earning my own living and why should i be ashamed of my pinafore my pinafore is good enough for him she also thought let him wait and went off into the kitchen to get the modern appliance of the match for lighting the gas in the lobby when she had lighted the gas she opened the front door with audacious but nervous deliberation and the famous character impatiently walked straight in he wore prominent loose black kid gloves and a thin black overcoat looking coolly at her he said so you're the new lady companion young miss well i've heard rare accounts on ye rare accounts on ye missus is in i reckon his voice was extremely low rich and heavy it descended on the silence like a thick lubricating oil that only reluctantly abandons the curves in which it falls and rachel answered faintly tremulously yes no longer was she the independent woman censorious and scornful but a silly timid little thing though she condemned herself savagely for school-girlishness she could do nothing to arrest the swift change in her the fact was she was abashed partly by the legendary importance of the renowned batchgrew but more by his physical presence his mere presence was always disturbing for when he supervened into an environment he had always the air of an animal on a voyage of profitable discovery his nose was an adventurous sniffing nose a true nose which exercised the original and proper functions of a nose noisily his limbs were restless his boots like hoofs his eyes were as restless as his limbs and seemed ever to be seeking for something upon which they could definitely alight and not finding it he performed eructations with the disarming naturalness of a baby he was tall but not stout and yet he filled the lobby he was the sole fact in the lobby and it was as though rachel had to crush herself against the wall in order to make room for him his glance at rachel now became inquisitive calculating it seemed to be saying one day i may be able to make use of this piece of goods but there was a certain careless good-humour in it too what he saw was a naive young maid with agreeable features and a fine fresh complexion and rather reddish hair he did not approve of the colour of the hair he found pleasure in regarding her and in the perception that he had abashed her yes he liked to see her timid and downcast before him he was an old man but like most old men such as statesmen who have lived constantly at the full pressure of following their noses he was also a young man he creaked but he was not gravely impaired is it mr batchgrew rachel softly murmured the unnecessary question with one hand on the knob ready to open the sitting-room door he had flopped his stiff flat-topped felt hat on the oak chest and was taking off his overcoat he paused and lifting his chin and his incredible white whiskers with it gazed at rachel almost steadily for a couple of seconds 
"'It is,' he said, as it were, challengingly. "'It is, young miss.' Then he finished removing his overcoat, and thrust it roughly down on the hat. Rachel blushed as she modestly turned the knob and pushed the door so that he might pass in front of her. "'Here's Mr. Batchgrew, Mrs. Maldon,' she announced, feebly endeavouring to raise and clear her voice. "'Bless us!' the astonished exclamation of Mrs. Maldon was heard. And Councillor Batchgrew, with his crimson shiny face, and the vermilion rims around his unsteady eyes, and his elephant ears, and the absurd streaming of his white whiskers, and his multitudinous noisiness, and his black kid gloves, strode half theatrically past her, sniffing. To Rachel he was an object odious, almost obscene. In truth she had little mercy on old men in general, who, as a class, struck her as fussy, ridiculous, and repulsive. And beyond all the old men she had ever seen, she disliked Councillor Batchgrew and about Councillor Batchgrew what she most detested was, perhaps strangely, his loose, wrinkled, black-kid gloves. They were ordinary, harmless, black-kid gloves, but she counted them against him as a supreme offence. Conceited, self-conscious, horrid old brute, she thought, discreetly drawing the door to, and then going into the kitchen. He's interested in nothing and nobody but himself. She felt protective towards Mrs. Maldon, that simpleton who apparently could not see through a John Batchgrew. So Mrs. Maldon had been giving him good accounts of the new lady companion, had she? Part 7 "'Well, Lizzie Maldon,' said Councillor Batchgrew, as he crossed the sitting-room, "'how do you find yourself, Sings?' he went on, taking Mrs. Maldon's hand, with a certain negligence, and at the same time fixing an unfriendly eye on the gas. Mrs. Maldon had risen to welcome him with the punctilious warmth due to an old gentleman, a trustee, and a notability. She told him as to her own health, and inquired about his— but he ignored her smooth utterances in the ardour of following his nose. "'Sings worse than ever. Very unhealthy, too. Haven't I told ye and told ye? Ye ought to let me put electricity in view. It isn't as if it wasn't your own house. Pay ye, pay ye over and over again.' He sat down in a chair by the table, drew off his loose black gloves, and after letting them hover irresolutely over the encumbered table, deposited them for safety in a china slot-basin. "'I dare say you're quite right,' said Mrs. Maldon, with grave urbanity. "'But really gas suits me very well, and you know the gas manager complains so much about the competition of electricity. Truly it does seem unfair, doesn't it, as they both belong to the town? If I gave up gas for electricity, I don't think I could look the poor man in the face at church, and all these changes cost money. How is dear Enid?' Mr. Batchgrew had now stretched out his legs and crossed one over the other, and he was twisting his thumbs on his diaphragm. "'Enid? Oh, Enid, well, I did hear she's able to nurse the child at last.' He spoke of his granddaughter-in-law as of one among a multiplicity of women about whose condition vague rumours reached him at intervals. Mrs. Moulton breathed fervently. "'I'm so thankful. What a blessing that is, isn't it?' "'As for costing money, Elizabeth,' Mr. Batchgrew proceeded, "'you'll be all right now for money.' He paused, sat up straight with puffings, and leaned sideways against the table. Then he said, half fiercely, "'I've settled up the Brown Street mortgage.' "'You don't say so,' Mrs. Moulton was startled. "'I do.' when to-day well that's what i stepped in for mrs maldon feebly murmured with obvious emotion you can't imagine what a relief it is to me tears shone in her dark mild eyes look ye exclaimed the trustee curtly he drew from his breast-pocket a bank envelope of linen and then glancing at the table pushed cups and saucers abruptly away to make a clear space on the white cloth the newspaper slipped rustling to the floor on the side near the window Already his gloves were abominable in the slot-basin, and now with a single gesture he had destroyed the symmetry of the set table. 
Mrs. Molden, with surpassing patience, smiled sweetly, and assured herself that Mr. Batchgrew could not help it. He was a coarse male creature, at large in a room highly feminized. It was his habit thus to pass through orderly interiors, distributing havoc like a rough soldier. You might almost hear a sword clanking in the scabbard. Ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, he began in his heavily rolling voice to count out one by one a bundle of notes which he had taken from the envelope. He generously licked his thick, curved back thumb for the separating of the notes, and made each note sharply click in the manner of a bank cashier, to prove to himself that it was not two notes stuck together. Five seventy, five eighty, five ninety, six hundred. These are all tens. Now the fives. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five. He counted up to three hundred and sixty-five. That's nine sixty-five altogether. The odd sixty-five's arrear of interest. I'm investing nine hundred again to-morrow, and the interest on the new investment is to start from the first of this month. So instead of being out of pocket, you'll be in pocket, Mrs. The notes lay in two irregular filmy heaps on the table. Having carefully returned the empty envelope to his pocket, Mr. Batchgrew sat back, triumphant, and his eye met the delighted yet disturbed eye of Mrs. Molden, and then wavered and dodged. Mr. Batchgrew, with all his romantic qualities, lacked any perception of the noble and beautiful in life, and it could be positively asserted that his estimate of Mrs. Molden was chiefly disdainful. But of Mrs. Molden's secret opinion about John Batchgrew nothing could be affirmed with certainty. Nobody knew it, or ever would know it. I doubt whether Mrs. Molden had whispered it even to herself. In youth he had been the very intimate friend of her husband, which fact would scarcely tally with Mrs. Molden's memory of her husband as the most upright and perspicacious of men, unless on the assumption that John Batchgrew's real characteristics had not properly revealed themselves until after his crony's death. This assumption was perhaps admissible. Mrs. Molden invariably spoke of John Batchgrew with respect and admiration. She probably had perfect confidence in him as a trustee, and such confidence was justified, for the councillor knew as well as anybody in what fields rectitude was a remunerative virtue, and in what fields it was not. Indeed, as a trustee, his sense of honour and of duty was so nice that in order to save his ward from loss in connection with a depreciating mortgage security, he had invented, as a town councillor, the improvement known as the Browham Street Scheme. If this was not said outright, it was hinted. At any rate, the idea was fairly current that had not Councillor Batchgrew been interested in Brougham Street property, the Brougham Street scheme involving the compulsory purchase of some of that property at the handsome price naturally expected from the munificence of corporations, would never have come into being. Mrs. Molden knew of the existence of the idea, which had been obscurely referred to by a licensed victualler, inimicably prejudiced against the teetotaler in Mr. Batchgrew, at a council meeting reported in the signal. And it was precisely this knowledge which had imparted to her glance the peculiar disturbed quality that had caused Mr. Batchgrew to waver and dodge. The occasion demanded the exercise of unflinching common sense, and Mrs. Molden was equal to it. She very wisely decided that she ought not to concern herself, and could not concern herself, with an aspect of the matter which concerned her trustee alone and therefore she gave her heart entirely up to an intense gladness at the integral recovery of the mortgage money. For despite her faith in the efficiency of her trustee, Mrs. Molden would worry about finance. She would yield to an exquisitely painful dread lest anything should happen, happen, that is, to prevent her from dying in the comfortable and dignified state in which she had lived. Her income was not large, a little under three hundred pounds a year, but with care it sufficed for her own wants, and for gifts, subscriptions, and an occasional carriage. There would have been a small margin, but for the constant rise in prices. 
as it was there was no permanent margin and to have cut off a single annual subscription or lessened a single customary gift would have mortally wounded her pride the gradual declension of property values in brougham street had been a danger that each year grew more menacing the moment had long ago come when the whole rents of the mortgaged cottages would not cover her interest the promise of the corporation improvement scheme had only partially reassured her it seemed too good to be true she could not believe without seeing she now saw suddenly blindingly and her relief beneath that stately deportment of hers was pathetic in its simple intensity it would have moved john batchgrew had he been in any degree susceptible to the thrill of pathos i doubt if i've seen so much money all at once before said mrs maldon smiling weakly happen not said mr batchgrew proud with insincere casualness and he added in exactly the same tone i'm leaving it with you to-night mrs maldon was aghast but she feigned sprightliness as she exclaimed you're not leaving all this money here to-night i am said the trustee that's what i came for evans was three hours late in completing and the bank was closed i have but just got it i'm not going home he lived eight miles off near axe i've got to go to a church meeting at red cow and i'm sleeping there john's ernest is calling here for me presently i don't fancy driving over them moors with near a thousand pun in my pocket and colliers out on strike not at my age missus if you don't know what red cow is i reckon i do it's your money put it in a drawer and say nout and i'll fetch it to-morrow what'll happen to it think ye seeing as it hasn't got legs he spoke with the authority of a trustee and mrs maldon felt that her reputation for sensible equanimity was worth preserving so she said bravely i suppose it will be all right of course snapped the trustee patronizingly but i must tell rachel 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 oh her why tell any one mr batchgrew sniffed very actively oh i shouldn't be easy if i didn't tell rachel insisted mrs maldon with firmness before the trustee could protest anew she had rung the bell part eight it was another and an apronless rachel that entered the room a rachel transformed magnificent in light green frock with elaborate lacy ruchings and ornamentations and the waist at the new fashionable height her ruddy face and hands were fresh from water her hair very glossy and very neat she was in high array this festival attire mrs maldon now fully beheld for the first time it indeed honoured herself for she had ordained a festive evening but at the same time she was surprised and troubled by it as for mr batchgrew he entirely ignored the vision stretched out in one long inclined plane from the back of his chair down to the brass fender he contemplated the fire while picking his teeth with a certain impatience and still sniffing actively the girl resented this disregard but though she remained hostile to the grotesque old man with his fussy noises the mantle of mrs maldon's moral protection was now over councillor batchgrew and rachel's mistrustful scorn of him had lost some of its pleasing force rachel mrs maldon gave a hesitating cough yes mrs maldon said rachel questioningly deferential and smiling faintly into mrs maldon's apprehensive eyes against the background of the aged pair she seemed dramatically young lithe living and wistful she was nervous but she thought with strong superiority what are these old folks planning together why do they ring for me at length mrs maldon proceeded i think i ought to tell you dear mr batchgrew is obliged to leave this money in my charge to-night what money asked rachel mr batchgrew put in sharply drawing up his legs this here young miss step this way if you please i'll count it ten twenty thirty with new lickings and clickings he counted the notes all over again there when he had finished his pride had become positively naive oh my word murmured rachel awed and astounded 
"'It is rather a lot, isn't it?' said Mrs. Molden, with a timid laugh. At once fascinated and repelled, the two women looked at the money as at a magic. It represented to Mrs. Molden a future free from financial embarrassment. It represented to Rachel more than she could earn in half a century at her wage of eighteen pounds a year, an unimaginable source of endless gratifications, and yet the mere fact that it was to stay in the house all night changed it for them into something dire and formidable, so that it inspired both of them, the ancient dame and the young girl, with naught but a mystic dread. Mr. Batchgrew eyed the affrighted creatures with satisfaction, appearing to take a perverse pleasure in thus imposing upon them the horrid incubus. "'I was only thinking of burglars,' said Mrs. Maldon apologetically. "'There have been so many burglaries lately.' She ceased, uncertain of her voice. The forced lightness of her tone was almost tragic. "'There won't be any more,' said Mr. Batchgrew, condescendingly. "'Why?' demanded Mrs. Maldon, with an eager smile of hope. "'Have they caught them, then? Has Superintendent Snow—' "'They have their hands on them. "'Tomorrow there'll be some arrests,' Mr. Batchgrew answered, exuding authority, for he was not merely a town councillor, he was brother-in-law to the superintendent of the borough police. "'Caught him long ago if the county police had been a bit more reliable.' "'Oh!' Mrs. Molden breathed happily. "'I knew it couldn't be Mr. Snow's fault. "'I felt sure of that. "'I'm so glad.' And Rachel also was conscious of gladness. In fact, it suddenly seemed plain to both women that no burglar, certain of arrest on the morrow, would dare to invade the house of a lady whose trustee had married the sister of the superintendent of police. The house was invisibly protected. "'And we mustn't forget we shall have a man sleeping here to-night,' said Rachel confidently. "'Of course, of course, I was quite overlooking that,' exclaimed Mrs. Molden. Mr. Batchgrew threw a curt and suspicious question. "'What man?' "'My nephew Julian, I should say my grand-nephew,' Mrs. Molden's proud tone rebuked the strange tone of Mr. Batchgrew. "'It is his birthday. He and Louis are having supper with me, and Julian is staying the night.' "'Well, if you take my advice, Mrs., you'll say nout to nobody. Lock the brass up in a drawer in that wardrobe of yours, and keep a still tongue in your head.' "'Perhaps you're right,' Mrs. Molden agreed. "'As a matter of general principle, I mean. And it might make Julian uneasy.' "'Take it and lock it up,' Mr. Batchgrew repeated. "'I don't know about my wardrobe,' Mrs. Molden began. "'Anywhere,' Mr. Batchgrew stopped her. "'Only,' said Rachel with careful gentleness, "'please don't forget where you have put it.' But her precaution of manner was futile. Twice within a minute she had employed the word forget. Twice was too often. Mrs. Molden's memory was most capriciously uncertain. Its lapses astonished sometimes even herself, and naturally she was sensitive on the point. She nourished the fiction, and she expected others to nourish it, that her memory was quite equal to younger memories. Indeed, she would admit every symptom of old age, save an unreliable memory. Composing a dignified smile, she said with reproving blandness, "'I am not in the habit of forgetting where I put valuables, Rachel.' and her prominently veined fingers, clasping the notes as a preliminary to hiding them away, seemed in their nervous primness to be saying to Rachel, "'I have deep confidence in you, and I think that to-night I have shown it, but oblige me by not presuming. I am Mrs. Molden, and you are Rachel. After all, I have not yet known you for a month.'" Part 9 A very loud rasping noise, like a vicious menace, sounded from the street, shivering instantaneously the delicate placidity of Mrs. Molden's home. Mrs. Molden gave a start. "'That'll be John's earnest with the car,' said Mr. Batchgrew, amused, and he began to get up from the chair. As soon as he was on his feet, his nose grew active again. "'You've nothing to be afraid of, Mrs.' he added, in a tone roughly reassuring and good-natured. "'Oh, no, of course not,' concurred Mrs. Molden, further enforcing intrepidity on herself. 
"'Of course not. I only just mentioned burglars, because there's so much in the paper.' And she stooped to pick up the signal, and folded it carefully, as if to prove that her mind was utterly collected. Councillor Batchgrew, leaning over the table, peered into various vessels in search of his gloves. At length he took them finickingly from the white slot-basin, as though fishing them out of a puddle. He began to put them on, and then, halfway through the process, abruptly shook hands with Mrs. Maldon. "'Then you'll call in the morning?' she asked. "'Aye, ye may count on me. I'll relieve ye of it afore ten o'clock. It'll be on my way to Hanbridge, you see.' Mrs. Maldon ceremoniously accompanied her trustee as far as the sitting-room door, where she recommended him to the careful attention of Rachel. No woman in the five towns could take leave of a guest with more impressive dignity than old Mrs. Maldon, whose fine southern accent always gave a finish to her farewells. In the lobby Mr. Batchgrew kept Rachel waiting with his overcoat in her outstretched hands while he completed the business of his gloves. As close behind him she coaxed his stiff arms into the overcoat, she suddenly felt that after all he was nothing but a decrepit survival, and his offensiveness seemed somehow to have been increased, perhaps by the singular episode of the gloves and the slot-basin. She opened the front door, and without a word to her he departed down the steps. Two lamps like lighthouses glared fiercely along the roadway, dulling the municipal gas and giving to each loose stone on the macadam a long shadow. In the gloom behind the lamps the low form of an open automobile showed, and a dim cloaked figure beside it. A boyish voice said with playful bullying sharpness above the growling irregular pulsation of the engine, "'Here, Grandad, you've got to put this on.' "'Have I?' demanded uncertainly the thick, heavy voice of the old man. "'Yes, you have, on the top of your other coat. "'If I don't look after you, I shall get myself into a row. "'Here, let me put your fist in the armhole. "'It's your blooming glove that stops it. "'There, now up with you, Grandad. "'All right, I've got you. I shan't drop you.' A door snapped to, then another. The car shot violently forward, with shrieks and a huge buzzing noise, and leapt up the slope of the street. Rachel, still in the porch, could see Mr. Batchgrew's head wagging rather helplessly from side to side, just above the red speck of the tail-lamp. Then the whole vision was swiftly blotted out, and the warning shrieks of the invisible car grew fainter on the way to Redcow. It pleased Rachel to think of the old man being casually bullied and shaken by John's Ernest. She leaned forward and gazed down the street, not up it. When she turned into the house, Mrs. Maldon was descending the stairs, which, being in a line with the lobby, ended opposite the front door. Judging by the fixity of the old lady's features, Rachel decided that she was not yet quite pardoned for the slight she had put upon the memory of her employer, so she smiled pleasantly. "'Don't close the front door, dear,' said Mrs. Maldon stiffly. "'There's someone there.' Rachel looked round. She had actually, in sheer absent-mindedness or negligence or deafness, been shutting the door in the face of the telegraph boy. "'Oh, dear, I do hope,' Mrs. Maldon muttered as she hastily tugged at the envelope. Having read the message, she passed it on to Rachel, and at the same time forgivingly responded to her smile. The excitement of the telegram had sufficed to dissipate Mrs. Maldon's trifling resentment. Rachel read, "'Train hour late. Julian.' The telegraph boy was dismissed. "'No answer, thank you.' Part 10 During the next half-hour, excitement within the dwelling gradually increased. It grew out of nothing, out of Mrs. Maldon's admirable calm in receiving the message of the telegram, until it affected like an atmospheric disturbance the ground floor, the sitting-room where Mrs. Maldon was spending nervous force in the effort to preserve an absolutely tranquil mind, the kitchen where Rachel was putting back the supper, the lobby towards which Rachel's eye and Mrs. Maldon's ear were strained to catch any sign of an arrival, and the unlighted, unused room behind the sitting-room which seemed to absorb and even intensify the changing moods of the house. 
The fact was that Mrs. Maldon, in her relief at finding that Julian was not killed or maimed for life in a railway accident, had begun by treating a delay of one hour in all her arrangements for the evening as a trifle. But she had soon felt that, though a trifle, it was really very upsetting and annoying. It gave birth to irrational yet real forebodings as to the non-success of her little party. It meant that the little party had started badly. And then her other grandnephew, Louis Fores, did not arrive. He had been invited for supper at seven, and should have appeared at five minutes to seven at the latest. But at five minutes to seven he had not come, nor at seven, nor at five minutes past, he who had barely a quarter of a mile to walk. There was surely a fate against the party, and Rachel strangely persisted in not leaving the kitchen. Even after Mrs. Maldon had heard her fumbling for an interminable time with the difficult window on the first-floor landing, she went back to the kitchen instead of presenting herself to her expectant mistress. At last Rachel entered the sitting-room, faintly humming an air. Mrs. Maldon thought that she looked self-conscious, but Mrs. Maldon also was self-conscious, and somehow could not bring her lips to utter the name of Louis Fores to Rachel, for the old lady had divined a connection of cause and effect between Louis Fores and the apparition of Rachel's superlative frock, and she did not like the connection. It troubled her, and offended the extreme nicety of her social code. There was a constrained silence which was broken by the lobby clock striking the first quarter after seven. This harsh announcement on the part of the inhuman clock seemed to render the situation intolerable. Fifteen minutes past seven, and Louis not come, and not a word of comment thereon. Mrs. Maldon had to admit privately that she was in a high state of agitation. Then Rachel, bending delicately to sweep the hearth with the brass-handled brush proper to it, remarked with an obvious affectation of nonchalance, "'Your other guest's late, too.' If Mrs. Maldon had not been able to speak his name, neither could Rachel. Mrs. Maldon read with painful certainty all the girl's symptoms. "'Yes, indeed,' said Mrs. Maldon. "'It's like as if what must be,' Rachel murmured, employing a local phrase which Mrs. Maldon had ever contemned as meaningless and ungrammatical. "'Fortunately it doesn't matter, as Julian is late too,' said Mrs. Maldon insincerely, for it was mattering very much. "'But still, I wonder—' Rachel broke out upon her hesitation in a very startling manner. "'I'll just see if he's coming.' and she abruptly quitted the room, almost slamming the door. Mrs. Maldon was dumbfounded. Scared and attentive, she listened in amaze for the sound of the front door. She heard it open. But was it possible that she heard also the creak of the gate? She sprang to the bow window with surprising activity, and pulled aside a blind one inch. There was Rachel tripping hatless and in her best frock down the street. Inconceivable vision, affecting Mrs. Maldon with palpitation. A girl so excellent, so lovable, so trustworthy, to be guilty of the wanton caprice of a minx. Supposing Louis were to see her, to catch her in the brazen act of looking for him. Mrs. Maldon was grieved, and her gentle sorrow for Rachel's incalculable lapse was so dignified, affectionate, and jealous, for the good repute of human nature, that it mysteriously ennobled instead of degrading the young creature. Part 11 Going down Biker's Lane, amid the soft wandering airs of the September night, Rachel had the delicious and exciting sensation of being unyoked, of being at liberty for a space to obey the strong, free, common sense of youth, instead of conforming to the outworn and tiresome code of another age. Mrs. Maldon's was certainly a house that put a strain on the nerves. It did not occur to Rachel that she was doing out but a very natural and proper thing. The non-appearance of Louis Fores was causing disquiet, and her simple aim was to shorten the period of anxiety nor did it occur to her that she was impulsive. Something had to be done, and she had done something. Not much longer could she have borne the suspense. 
All that day she had lived forward towards supper-time, when Louis Fores would appear. Over and over again she had lived right through the moment of opening the front door for him at a little before seven o'clock. The moments between seven o'clock and a quarter past had been a crescendo of torment intolerable at last. His lateness was inexplicable, and he was so close to that not to look for him would have been ridiculous. She was apprehensive, and yet she was obscurely happy in her fears. The large, inviting, dangerous universe was about her. She had escaped from the confining shelter of the house and the night was about her. It was not necessary for her to wear three coats, like the grey spatchcrew, in order to protect herself from the night. She could go forth into it with no precaution. She was young. Her vigorous and confident body might challenge perils. When she had proceeded a hundred yards, she stopped and turned to look back at the cluster of houses collectively called bikers. The distinctive bow-window of Mrs. Maldon's shone yellow. Within the sacred room was still the old lady, sitting expectant, and trying to interest herself in the paper. Strange thought. Biker's Lane led in a north-easterly direction over the broad hill, whose ridge separates the lane from the moorlands, honeycombed with coal and iron mines. Above the ridge showed the fire and vapour of the first mining villages, on the way to Redcow, proof that not all colliers were yet on strike. And above that pyrotechny hung the moon. The municipal park, of which Biker's Lane was the northwestern boundary, lay in mysterious and forbidden groves behind its spiked red wall and locked gates, and beyond it a bright tram-car was leaping down from lamp to lamp of Moorthorne Road towards the town. Between the masses of the ragged hedge on the north side of the lane there was the thin gleam of Biker's Pool, lost in a vague, unoccupied region of shore-drucks and dirty pasture, the rendezvous of skaters when the frost held, Louis Fores had told her, and she had heard from another source that he skated divinely she could believe it too she resumed her way more slowly she had only stopped because though burned with the desire to see him she yet had an instinct to postpone the encounter she was almost minded to return but she went on the town was really very near the illuminated clock of the town hall had dominion over it the golden shimmer above the roofs to the left indicated the electrical splendour of the new cinema in moorthorne road next to the new primitive methodist chapel he had told her about that too in two minutes, in less than two minutes, she was among houses again, and approaching the corner of Friendly Street. He would come from the Moorthorne Road end of Friendly Street. She would peep round the corner of Friendly Street to see if he was coming. But before she reached the corner, her escapade suddenly presented itself to her, as childish madness, silly, inexcusable, and she thought self-reproachfully, "'How impulsive I am!' and sharply turned back towards Mrs. Maldon's house, which seemed to be about ten miles off. A moment later she heard hurried footfalls behind her on the narrow brick pavement, and after one furtive glance over her shoulder she quickened her pace. Louis Fores, in all his elegance, was pursuing her. Nothing had happened to him. He was not ill, he was merely a little late. After all, she would sit by his side at the supper-table. She had a spasm of shame that was excruciating, but at the same time she was wildly glad, and already this inebriating illusion of an ingenuous girl concerning a common male was helping to shape monstrous events. End of chapter 1